Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 28. Today's episode covers three key witnesses in Dealey Plaza. Mr. Arnold Rowland, Mrs. Carolyn Walther, and Ruby Henderson. So, after all of that emphasis on a couple of photos in the previous episode, this is a good place to pivot to what other eyes saw, regardless of what was not captured by a camera. We know the eyes of three other witnesses saw something that no other camera took a picture of that day, in Dealey Plaza, that is, and more specifically, in those sixth-floor windows. And out of the hundreds of people in the plaza, there are three people just three people who identified or stepped forward to interact with and tell their story to law enforcement at the time of the assassination. These are the three people that saw two people on the sixth floor at the same time. But as a juror, listen closely because the details of what they saw matters and the details differ. Those three witnesses were Arnold Rowland, Carolyn Walther, and Ruby Henderson. Curiously, all three were interviewed by the FBI shortly after the assassination. And in a further curiosity, the Warren Commission chose to take the testimony of only one of them, Arnold Rowland, ignoring the testimony of the other two, both women. Don't worry, I don't think this was an act of discrimination. You see, the Warren Commission was an equal opportunity avoider, for sure. And Arnold Rowland was already identified by another highly reputable witness at the time, Roger Craig from the Dallas Sheriff's Office. We all know Roger from an earlier episode, and we heard about Mr. Rowland then as well. Roger had encountered Mr. Rowland and his wife shortly after the shots were fired. And that's where the Rowlands story about what Mr. Rowland saw in the window of the depository was first relayed. The cat was out of the bag, so to speak, almost from the start. And Roger was clearly going to testify in front of the commission, and he had already gone on official record of what Roland had said, or at least what he thought he had said. So you see, the commission couldn't help but call Mr. Roland. So the commission lawyers did. And they could get away with letting the stories of Carolyn Walther and Ruby Henderson stay covered in investigative dust, so to speak, remaining out of the limelight because in my now famous litany, their testimony didn't fit the official narrative. But what would they do when it came to Roland? Well, he was young and it was not that hard to position things in a way that Mr. Roland may have been perceived as a confused or somewhat odd witness at times, Hard to believe you could discredit an 18-year-old married man regarding his basic testimony on this topic. But they did, in some ways, actually playing into his own ego a bit and the commission ultimately catching him in a lie about his 
perfect grades, and uh, other similar nonsense. This was a smart young man, even if his own answers about his background are exaggerated, because for the most part, his testimony seemed to be detailed and not refuted by others. He had, by his own admission, when asked by the Warren Commission interviewers, a 4.0 grade point average in high school, and his self-proclaimed IQ, when asked by the commission, was 147. He was clearly trying to portray himself as a nerd of sorts, and I say that in a very good way. And he also, when asked, volunteered to Arlen Specter, the commission lawyer, stories about science experiments that he had undertaken related to the sound of gunshots. He was a kid who enjoyed math and science and chose an odd venue to show off in. That's all. I don't know about you, but I don't know my IQ, and I don't think I ever did. I know some people did when I was growing up, so I have to give him a pass on that one. I do know that his 147 score, if it was true, makes him a smart cookie. But then again, he didn't exactly represent his grades properly when he declared he had a 4.0. It seemed that they left the main task of that up to Arlen Specter when Specter went after him uh, in a myriad of circumstances, uh, one notably for not telling the FBI on the day of the assassination about the existence of the second man next to the gunman. And why wasn't that statement repeated in every one of the seven interviews that he endured? Specter actually asked that. (laughs) I might counter Mr. Specter and say, How many times do you have to repeat yourself to people who are totally uninterested in what you have to say on that topic? And that was the M.O. of the FBI during this series of interviews of Mr. Rowland. Well, I'm not sure, but it was a better question to be asking the FBI and not aimed at the 18-year-old Arnold Rowland. I have my doubts that Arlen Specter ever asked the FBI that question. Look, It came down to ignoring two women and discrediting one man, all in the name of maintaining the official narrative. And to be fair and objective, some of Roland's testimony surrounding the second person he saw is confusing, and so is the way that Spectre questioned him about it. They really made no real attempt to clear the details of that up other than for Spectre to press and get a good description of this second man, who was purportedly standing on the same floor next to the gunman. However, this gunman was not at the southeast corner. He was, according to Roland, at the other end of the same floor. In other words, the southwest corner of the Texas School Book Depository sixth floor, and not the southeast corner. Now, I do need to make a clarification here. When Roland identified two people on the same floor, the sixth floor, what he was really referring to is the presence of a shooter on the southwest corner and, ironically, the presence of another man in a window that we're already familiar with all the way to the other end of the building on the southeast corner. Actually, in the same window that we had heretofore termed the sniper's nest. As soon as Roland revealed that this second person was an older African-American man and who I am sure did not fit the 
physical MO of an assassin to them as they listen, they then just let that dog stay dazed and confused on the floor. So here we have two bombshells, really. We have a credible testimony of a gunman in the southwest corner of the sixth floor of the book depository about 12.15. And now we have a person without a gun sitting in what we previously understood to be the sniper's nest. Boy, I'm confused. Now that you know the backdrop, let's proceed with the stories of these three witnesses. Arnold Rowland was first interviewed by the Dallas Sheriff's Office on the day of the assassination. He would undergo six more interviews, a courtesy of the FBI and the Secret Service, before he would finally testify before the Warren Commission. On the day of the assassination, he was taken immediately over to meet Sheriff Decker, and there in a room, he and his wife were kept for about four hours, along with another lady who apparently had seen a man earlier in the day carrying a gun case. We know this based on Roland's testimony and the fact that they were at the station together. This might have been Julia Ann Mercer, but I'm not sure, and we're going to explore that more in another episode. Mr. Roland was still at a tender age. He was all of 18, and he was a high school student at Adamson High School in Dallas. In fact, he had only two classes on that Friday and finished class at 11, just like his wife did, which allowed both of them to free up and go downtown. And that leads me to commenting that he was a newlywed as well, although at age 18, you probably figured that one out already. He had been married for about six months before the assassination. Like so many of the witnesses that day, he had lived most of his life in Texas, except for a brief few months that he spent in Salem, Oregon. By the time he was interviewed by the Warren Commission, he had already been accepted to several colleges, including SMU, Rice, and Texas A&M, among others, and he had plans to attend. Imagine going downtown to see such a wonderful event and then to be burdened with the most mature of circumstances, to be a key witness in the assassination of the President of the United States. Can you imagine how one of our kids at 18 would have handled that moment? He and his wife Barbara rode a bus from school that day, leaving school and arriving downtown at about 11.45. The FBI report got this detail wrong and said that they arrived in town at 12.10. Roland would later correct this. In reality, he and his wife walked a good five or six blocks circulating in that general downtown area trying to find just the right vantage point to watch the parade. And they soon made their way over near the west entrance of the sheriff's office on Houston Street. They actually arrived there at that point around 12.10, according to later statements made to the commission by Roland. This was a spot that seemed to allow them a view with no one in front of them. Remember, the sheriff's office is right there at the corner of Maine and Houston. They had a few minutes before the parade got there, and they both got to talking about the security measures for the president's visit in light of the recent trouble that occurred when Adlai Stevenson, who was a celebrated politician of the time and at one time a candidate for president, 
and was then the ambassador to the United Nations. Well, Stevenson had come to town in Dallas back in late October. He was heckled, spat on, and at one point was actually hit with a sign by angry protesters. As a side note, Stevenson, based on what happened during his own trip to Dallas, had warned President Kennedy's advisors about the quote-unquote ugly and frightening mood he had encountered in Dallas. Unfortunately, that was not enough to keep the president from coming that fall day. As a standard procedure, the Warren Commission attorneys began to ask witnesses while they were under oath testifying at the commission whether or not their previous sworn affidavits, mostly taken right after or very near the date of the assassination, were accurate, correct, and complete. Or, if not, was there anything they would like to correct or add to the record? Roland, who, as I said, had been interviewed a total of seven times before he met with the commission, was a prime candidate for that discussion. Arlen Specter was the interviewing attorney that day, and Congressman Gerald Ford and Senator John Sherman Cooper, both being members of the Warren Commission, were also present for Roland's testimony and participated in the questioning. In Roland's case regarding his statements made previously to the FBI and the Sheriff's Department, that is, those statements he made before he testified before the Warren Commission visit, it's notable that several things contained in his first or original statement taken down by the Sheriff's Department were in need of correction, and he made a point of pointing this out to the Warren Commission. They were important, too, in terms of their potential impact to the official narrative. First, the original statement taken by the sheriff's office had him saying that the person he saw was inside the building some 15 feet from the window. As he so elegantly pointed out, not only did he not say that, but he went on record saying he wasn't sure how anyone would have been able to see someone who was standing some 15 feet back from the window. Again, he reiterated that his original statement was three to five feet back. Pretty easy to see how someone just reading over the affidavit might have easily tossed aside what Mr. Rowland said after reading the 15-foot comment. Well, just another piece of great police work by the Sheriff's Office interrogator, or was it something more? Anyway, he would describe to the Commission the process they used that day in Sheriff Decker's offices during the interrogation. There was a secretary present taking shorthand notes and then right there converting those notes onto a typewriter, but after the FBI agent in attendance made edits to the original notes. In other words, the authorities put together the statement that was to be signed. This particular affidavit of that day at the sheriff's office was not handwritten by the witness and signed. Rather, it was typed by the court reporter or secretary that was in the room at the time. And, more importantly, the notes were then edited by the FBI agent before it was typed up. 
The report also stated that they arrived in downtown around 1210, when the fact is that the time they arrived was much earlier than that. They arrived at the position on Houston around 1210, but that was after being let off the bus and walking around many blocks to eventually find a spot that was suitable to view the motorcade. In other words, they were in a position by 1210 to begin seeing things happening in the school book depository windows. The statements that were taken down in the sheriff's office report that fateful day of the assassination tell the story. Mr. Rowland thought it must have been five or ten minutes later after they got into position near the sheriff's office to watch the motorcade that he saw someone in the window. Only it was not the southeast window, but it was the southwest window, and he was sure it was the side of the building closest to the underpass. And so it was somewhere around 12.15 or 12.20. As they arrived and as his wife began to just look around at the surrounding buildings and Mr. Rowland looked up at the depository building and he noticed that the second floor from the top had two adjoining windows which were open. And upon looking up, he saw what he thought to be a man standing back, again, about 15 feet from the windows, or rather three to five feet from the windows, as we would later hear the correction in that statement. And the man in the window was holding in his arms what appeared to be a high-powered rifle because it looked like it had a scope on it. He appeared to be holding this at a parade rest sort of position. Roland mentioned this to his wife and merely made the remark that it must be a secret service man. This man appeared to be a white man to him and he appeared to have a light-colored shirt on, open at the neck. He appeared to be of slender build and appeared to have dark hair. At the time, he thought that the time was about 15 minutes before President Kennedy was set to pass the spot where he and his wife were standing. Soon the motorcade would be there and turn west on Elm heading down the hill when Mr. Rowland heard a noise which he thought to be a backfire. In fact, some of the people around laughed and then in his estimation, about eight seconds later, he heard another report. Remember, that was the vernacular during this era for a gunshot, the use of the term report. And in about three seconds later, a third report. This supports the idea that the second and the third shots were more closer together than the first and the second shots. At that moment, his wife Barbara took hold of his hand, and as he would describe it, she started running and almost dragging him across the street, and he never did look up again at that window. That's it. That's all that was taken down in the sheriff's office report that day of the assassination. No mention of a second person in the window. So why are we including Mr. Rowland here? Well, we know, based on what Roger Craig would say in other testimony and venues, that moments after the shooting, as Roger was canvassing the area around the railroad yard and near the depository on Elm, he would run into the Rowlands. And Arnold would tell his story to Roger Craig, and it would include, based on Roger's assertion, that the young man saw two men in windows. Nothing more really than just that. Just that he had seen two men up there. And that is what he told Roger just moments after the shots were fired. 
Well, let's fast forward to Mr. Rowland's testimony before the Warren Commission. As he said, more on that more on that day than was set forth in the simple statement taken by the sheriff's office on the day of the assassination. And more clarifying than the previous seven interviews this young man was subjected to, most of which, uh, the seven interviews that is, took place within about 10 days after the assassination. The problems with Mr. Rowland's testimony started small. First, he got his geography mixed up for a moment. Not surprising, after all, he was an 18-year-old who simply was not familiar with that area. He had never heard of the area he was in as being described as Dealey Plaza. That is surprising to me, but whatever. To him, it was simply the triple underpass. And then he began to describe he and his wife's position at one point as being at the corner of Elm and Main. We know that Elm does not intersect with Main. Houston does. Eventually, he got his bearings and settled on a spot on the map at Houston and Maine, and then eventually visual maps cleared that up in his testimony. The Rollins didn't exactly stay there for long. Continuing to jockey for a better position to see things, they again moved down Houston closer to Elm. Mr. Rowland used to like to set his clock by the time on the Hertz clock perched at the top of the school book depository, and at that moment, The moment of this latest move, he looked up and saw the time on his watch was 12.14. And at the time, the time on the Hertz clock was about a minute later, 12.15. He and his wife briefly had the discussion about the events surrounding Adlai Stevenson's trip and the security precautions being taken. It was a topic on their mind. They had both seen in the movies before where the government might put security men up in the windows. And right at the moment, as Mr. Rowland began looking up at the sixth floor, he could see right there in the sixth floor window of the depository, a man back from the window, not hanging out at the window. Again, this man was on the southwest corner of the sixth floor. He was standing there and holding a rifle. To Mr. Rowland, it appeared to be a fairly high-powered rifle. Rowland could see that it had a scope. Mr. Rowland mentioned it to his wife, Barbara, and briefly they discussed whether they should tell anyone, but they decided that it just must have been a security agent of some sort. He could see the rifle, and he could see all of it. He would go on to say that, to him, it looked like a odd 6 a deer rifle with a fairly large or powerful scope. He knew this particular rifle because his stepfather had one, and he had seen it up close. In his mind, the man had been holding the rifle in what he would describe as a port arms position. For those of us unfamiliar with what that means, Webster defines the port arms position as a position in the manual of arms in which the rifle is held diagonally in front of the body with the muzzle of the gun pointing upward and to the left. You can imagine that position as it is a common position of holding a rifle seen in war movies and pictures of soldiers. He would go on to describe the man that he saw in the window. The man with the gun, he was slender in build, in proportion to his width, and he appeared to be of fair complexion. Not fair, but light complexion. But he did have dark hair. To Roland, This man was either a light Latin or Caucasian, and his hair, once again, was dark, 
probably black, and it was closely cut to his head. Not long hair, and he had on a light shirt. But Mr. Rowland was unsure if it was just white or maybe a light blue, and the shirt was open at the collar, and it was also unbuttoned about halfway down. Under this, he had on a t-shirt or maybe a polo shirt. He was wearing dark slacks or blue jeans, but Roland could only see a portion of his pants. Roland had a good look at his body from his head down to about the midpoint between his waist and his knees. Roland thought the man might have been in his early 30s. Roland got a good look at him for what he estimated to be about 15 to 20 seconds. Once Roland became aware of this person in the window, his eyes kept moving back to the window every few seconds, maybe every 30 seconds. He wanted to see him again, and he wanted to be able to point this man out to his wife. Now, let's stop right there. We know for sure that Lee Harvey Oswald's hair was not black. The Rollins' eyes were keen for the security precautions that day, and they spotted a policeman on the top of the underpass. In fact, he estimated that as many as 25 police officers were in the area at the time. Roland was familiar with the depository building, and he had even been in there to buy a book. What came next, if you were not aware of his previous FBI testimony, would raise more than an eyebrow. He gave a detailed description of the second man on the sixth floor. Again, this was the man that was supposedly now occupying the sniper's nest on the southeast corner. He would describe him as a Negro man, being an elderly gentleman, very thin, bald or practically bald, very thin hair if he wasn't bald, and he had on a plaid shirt. He believes it was red or green, but in any case, a very bright color, which is why he remembered it. He thought the man was around 50 years old, or possibly even 55 to 60. He was dark in complexion, and his face was wrinkled, or perhaps marked in some way. Clearly, the FBI and the Secret Service had great interest in Roland's story from the very get-go. After the initial four hours in captivity at the sheriff's office on November 22nd, he would undergo six more interviews over the span of the next 10 days or so, mostly by the FBI, with the Secret Service present as well at the last interview. A total of seven interviews altogether. The original interview with Sheriff Decker also included attendees from the FBI and Agent Forrest Sorrells from the Secret Service. The sequence and character of those additional FBI interviews is interesting, and Mr. Rowland even expounds on them a little in his Warren Commission testimony. It may very well be that the extended number of interviews was more related to the FBI's attempt to press the few people who saw a gunman in the book depository window to positively identify that person as Lee Harvey Oswald. This likely became a particular focus after Sunday morning, November 24th, when Oswald was murdered without confessing to the crime before his death. At that point, there were only a precious few people that apparently were known by the authorities at that moment and that had any chance of stating that Oswald was up there on the sixth floor 
and that they saw Oswald in the window firing the shots. The authorities wanted their narrative, and Roland represented one of the few prime opportunities to harvest an eyewitness. Keep in mind from our earlier episode that Howard Brennan, the supposed star witness that could identify Oswald, balked at the lineup, and as a result, at this point, had not delivered a definitive eyewitness identification of Oswald in the shooter's nest. That actually happened after Oswald himself was murdered, and Brennan then ostensibly considered the risk to he and his family as greatly diminished. Or at least that's what his story was, and he was sticking to it. On Saturday morning the 23rd, the FBI came to the house of Mrs. Rowland's mother-in-law. There, Rowland made his way outside, and he sat in the FBI agent's car as they interviewed him again. As he completed the interview on Saturday, in an apparent thought that was offered up after the interview was over, but before the agents left, Roland told them the story of the second man on the sixth floor. The Negro man on the same floor as the shooter and who was in a window at the southwest side of the building. He had not said that or made any sort of statement about that the prior day at the sheriff's station. I guess four hours of captivity seemed to have gotten the best of him. But he was telling those details now. Then, Again, on Sunday the 24th, and not too long after Oswald himself was shot, the FBI was back again for the next interview, this time meeting him at his workplace, the Pizza Inn. Roland's wife happened to be present for this Sunday interview as she was at work with him that day. Again, Roland would tell the story of the Negro man on the same floor as the shooter. Again, Roland would report that the FBI agent did not appear to be interested in this particular information regarding the existence of a second person. Roland would later recount to the Warren Commission that he again told the FBI agents on that Sunday that there was the presence of a second person on the sixth floor and that this statement was again omitted from the submitted FBI report. Roland continued to emphasize that the agents on Sunday seemed particularly interested in whether Roland could positively identify the man with the gun in the window. Unfortunately, he could not positively identify him, although he maintained to the Warren Commission that he could potentially identify the older Negro man that he also saw in the sixth floor window, the second person on the sixth floor. The FBI agents brought with them a copy of the morning newspaper that contained a picture of Lee Harvey Oswald, and they would use it to ask Roland if he could positively identify him as the shooter. Again, Roland could not, and he thought the photo they were using out of the newspaper was not a particularly good one to use for identification purposes, as he judged it to be of rather low quality. The FBI came back again to his mother-in-law's house on Tuesday night for the fourth interview, and all they really wanted at that point was for him to sign a statement that he could not positively identify the gunman in the window. He signed a statement that night to that effect. One of the most odd aspects of this interview sequence is that up to this point, 
After three FBI interviews, four if you include the sheriff's office where two FBI agents were present, there were different FBI agents at each interview. Never were the same two present during an interview. All different, all four times. And that would continue through all seven interviews. I find that downright odd, but maybe they were trying to discredit him and find discrepancies, and maybe this was an easy way to try and just do that. No one knows what actual modus operandi of the FBI was there and present at that point, and it just might have been very innocent, but it does not seem to meet the test of good investigative work to keep sending new folks out each time. Anyway, back to the interview process. Then, the following Friday night, the FBI came back again to his workplace at the Pizza Inn for a fifth interview, asking Roland to recount the entire experience. And the agents, this time, just sat, listened, and took notes. The Bureau seemed chock full of FBI agents on this one, but they weren't through yet with Mr. Roland. Some two days later, on Sunday, they headed back to the Pizza Inn again and interviewed Roland for the sixth time at about one o'clock in the afternoon. They again asked Roland to recount the entire story, and the agents just listened and took notes. Then there was a final get-together, the seventh interview, but this time it was one FBI agent and one Secret Service agent. It was two or three days later on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Apparently, seven total interviews was the charm, and they left poor Mr. Rowland alone until March 10th when he made his way back in front of the Warren Commission to testify. So there you have it. Arnold Rowland is the first witness that states they saw two people at the same time on the sixth floor, with one of them being the gunman. Summarizing what we know, I'll enumerate the following points about the Roland experience. 1. He was an intelligent and credible witness. 2. The FBI became skeptical when the existence of the second identified party was not discussed in the first interview on the day of the assassination. 3. We know that there was no subsequent fabrication of the story by Roland because only minutes after the assassination, Roland relayed to Roger Craig of the Sheriff's Office the existence of two men up on that same floor of the depository, including one that was in possession of a rifle with a scope. 4. We know that Roland inappropriately boasted about his high school grades and other immaterial facts related to the case giving the FBI a platform to develop concern over his truthfulness. And they did just that. 5. We know that the FBI, despite hearing from Roland the story of the second person on the sixth floor as early as Saturday morning, still did not include the details of this second person in their FBI reports until after the one that was published after the seventh interview was completed. And I believe after the FBI had filed their final initial report on the assassination, a convenient way of avoiding any explanation regarding why they had a witness that saw the gunman with an accomplice in tow. Conspiracy was not the narrative. 
All right. Well, it's time to move on to our last two witnesses of the day. And these are unfortunately easier to cover since they were spoken to only once, each by the FBI, and neither was ever called to testify before the Warren Commission. The first of the two women is Carolyn Walther. Miss Eric Carolyn Walther worked in the cutting room for Miller and Randazzo, which was a dress factory on the third floor of the Daltex Mart building, located at 501 Elm Street, basically next door to the Texas School Book Depository. On the day of the assassination, she and another employee, Miss Pearl Springer, ate lunch at about 12 noon in the company's lunchroom, and then they left at about 12.20 p.m. to go down onto the street to watch the motorcade. They walked out of the front door of the building, crossed the street, and stopped at a point on the east side of Houston Street, about 50 or 60 feet south of the south curb of Elm Street. Like most of the handful of witnesses that happened to fall into this category and that we are telling the story about today, as they waited anxiously for the president, she started looking around and looked over toward the Texas School Book Depository building. She noticed a man wearing a brown suit and a very dark shirt leaning out a window of the third floor, somewhere about the middle window of the third floor. Shortly after this, and like so many other witnesses, she too saw the epileptic seizure that was going on across the street to the west of where she was, and she watched as an ambulance came by and took the man away. It was shortly after the ambulance left that she looked back towards the Texas School Book Depository building and saw a man standing on either the fourth or fifth floors, and he was at a window on the south side of the building. This man had the window open and was standing up, leaning out the window with both his hands extended outside the window ledge. This man was holding a rifle with the barrel pointed downward, and he was looking south on Houston Street. The man was wearing a white shirt and had had blonde or light brown hair. She recalled at the time that she had actually noticed that man there a few moments previously when she looked toward the building and thought that apparently there were guards everywhere. So in reality, she actually observed him twice. The rifle had a short barrel and seemed large around the stock or end of the rifle. Her impression was that the gun was a machine gun. She noticed nothing like a telescope sight on the rifle or a leather strap or, or sling on the rifle. Unfortunately, she admittedly stated that she knew nothing about rifles or guns of any type, but thought that the rifle was different from any she had ever seen. This man was standing in about the middle of the window. In this same window, to the left of this man, she could see a portion of another man standing by the side of the man with a rifle. This other man was standing erect and his head was above the opened portion of the window. As the window was very dirty, she could not see the head of this second man. She was positive that this window was not as high as the sixth floor. This second man was apparently wearing a brown suit coat and the only thing she could see was the right side of the man, from about the waist to the shoulders. Almost immediately after noticing this man with a rifle and the other man standing beside him, someone in the crowd said, Here they come! 
and she looked to her left, looking south on Houston Street to see the presidential party. As soon as President Kennedy's car passed where she was standing, she and Mrs. Springer turned away and started walking north towards Elm Street. At about the time they reached the curb at Elm Street, she heard a loud report and thought it was fireworks. There was a pause after the first report, then a second and a third report almost at the same time, and then a pause followed by at least one and possibly more reports. The noise seemed to come from up in the air, but she never looked up in that direction. When the second report sounded, she decided it was gunfire. So she and Mrs. Springer started diagonally across the street toward the Texas School Book Depository building. About the time she got across the street, she heard someone yell that the president had been hit. She stopped for a moment and listened to the police radio on a motorcycle, and as we know, that was probably Marion Baker's motorcycle. Then she returned to the building across the street where she works, the Daltex building, going back to her workplace at about 12.45 p.m. Wow, that's pretty powerful testimony. And really, I am just stunned that the Warren Commission did not call her as a witness. It's all right there in the FBI report. She clearly saw the man with the rifle, and she clearly saw a man right there next to him. You may not have a picture of it. Dillard may not have captured it with his camera, but there you have Carolyn Walther looking straight up and seeing it, and clearly articulating what she saw. If you were convinced of the narrative that the government had chosen and were defending vigorously that idea, then this witness alone might be enough to change your mind, and certainly this witness and the fact that she was interviewed by the FBI, and it's all right there in the FBI report, and yet the FBI still concluded that it was a lone gunman, and the Warren Commission didn't have any inclination to even talk to her. In some sense of the word, it's really kind of scary. But that is really what happened. All right, well, let's pivot now to the last witness. Ruby Henderson is last, but certainly still an important witness today. And here is her story. Her name was Tony, but she went by Ruby, Ruby Henderson. She worked in the records building, which was located uh, on the southeast corner of Elm and Houston, right there in that sort of, you know, cluster of, of buildings that includes the t- school book depository and the records building and also the Dow Tech's building. And as the crowd waited patiently, she too had her attention caught by the person who was experiencing the epileptic seizure in the plaza and uh, was taken away by the ambulance. At around 12.15 p.m., after the ambulance had departed, Ruby heard a woman in the records building yell, Go, Woodman! That was the name of a high school there in Dallas. You have to appreciate that it doesn't take much of a celebration to get people who love football to whoop it up a little. And they were certainly doing that at that moment. And that got her looking in the direction from where the yell emanated from, which was her building, the records building. And for some reason, from there, she swung the rest of the way around and looked at the Texas School Book Depository building. Ruby saw numerous people on various floors looking out of the windows of the depository building. And she recalls that she saw two men on one of the upper floors of the building. She wasn't sure about which floor, 
but she was sure that she saw no one on a floor that was higher up. Ruby recalled that one of the men had on a white shirt and had dark hair, and the other one had on a dark shirt. Ruby could only see these men from the waist up and did not know what their other attire consisted of. The man was possibly a Mexican, and Ruby thought it could have been a Negro, as the man appeared to be of dark complexion. Ruby couldn't describe the other person other than the fact that he was taller than the first man. Similar to what Mr. Rowland observed, these two men were standing back from the window, and she got the impression that they were working, and yet looking out the window, in anticipation of the motorcade passing that building. These two men came into her view before the motorcade reached Houston and Elm, but unfortunately, Ruby didn't have any idea what time interval had passed between her sighting of the men and arrival of the motorcade. Ruby saw the motorcade pass, and suddenly shots rang out. She initially thought it was a firecracker and said that she saw what she thought was a paper fly out of the presidential car. Sadly, Ruby would come to realize that what she had probably seen was the fatal shot to President Kennedy's head and the scattering of tissue and brain matter. After the first shot, Ruby believed that she had heard two more shots in rapid succession and then a fourth shot. After the shooting, Ruby was stunned. There she would pause. There she would stand, transfixed for some time, just in utter disbelief of what she had just seen and been a witness to. She eventually returned to her place of employment at approximately 12.43 p.m., but the post-trauma of the event kept coming back. Over the weekend, Mrs. Henderson said she became extremely upset and nervous after the president's assassination, and it was necessary for her to take the following Monday off from her job. She said that, at first, that she really didn't want to mention anything about her observations that day in Dealey Plaza, but felt she should go ahead and relate them as they might possibly be of some benefit. Well, there you have it. She didn't testify to seeing a gunman, but she saw two people together on a high floor and didn't see anyone on any floor that was higher, and much of her description was consistent with the Roland description and the description by Carolyn Walther. Three key witnesses who witnessed two people in the windows, including a gunman, a gunman that was there with an accomplice. In what seems to me a moment which really encapsulates the tragedy of all of this, near the end of Arnold Rowland's testimony, he looks up. He looks up at Senator Cooper, and he asks him, had he ever had a recurring dream? And Arnold Rowland goes on to say that he's having a recurring dream. And that recurring dream is really a nightmare. A nightmare that he didn't take action to tell someone. He didn't take an action that, had he done so, might have saved the president's life. As his testimony faded off into history, I'm sure that's a moment that lived with him for the rest of his life. Here was a young man that kept replaying this scene over and over, a horrific scene, a tragic scene, 
and he kept saying to himself, if I had only had perhaps a little more life experience, maybe, maybe I would have gone and told someone. It's just another example of how this event impacted so many lives and for the rest of their life, I'm sure. Witnesses who saw just the gun in the window, notably Amos Lee Ewens, a young African-American ninth grader, Mrs. Earl Cabell, the wife of the mayor of Dallas at the time who was riding in the motorcade itself, and Ronald Fisher and Robert Edwin Roberts. Mrs. Cabell's sighting of the gun is largely repetitive, so we won't cover it here. But her story later in the day that day, as she reached Parkland Memorial Hospital, is touching and worth telling separately. So we will leave her to a separate episode. It's also worthy to note that the county jail is juxtaposition on the edge of Dealey Plaza at the corner of Maine and Houston in such a way that inmates could actually see from a high vantage point the parade that day. And many of them did watch. We know that from testimony provided to the Warren Commission. In one of the most ironic aspects of the witness pool, perhaps those within the jail the inmates themselves had some of the best views of what really happened that day in the plaza. Right there, just sitting up there in that jail. But none of them ever got a chance to tell their story. The story of what they saw. In the next episode, episode 29, we'll cover these last handful of witnesses that I just called out who saw a gunman in the window at the Texas School Book Depository. And then, in episode 30... Right after that, finally, we're going to get to the question of the grassy knoll and how the Dealey Plaza witnesses come into play. It's getting interesting, isn't it? When you remember that conspiracy simply means more than one person involved in the planning and the perpetration of the crime, this is starting to feel like just that. Well, it won't be long before the next episode, as I said just a second ago. So we'll see you back shortly in episode 29. Arnold Rowland was here with his wife on Houston Street in the crowd waiting for the motorcade. A few minutes before it arrived, Rowland told the Warren Commission, he noticed an elderly Negro man up in the window where you are now, where Oswald is supposed to have fired from. But he told the Commission, and a few days ago repeated his story for us here, of seeing a gunman lurking in another window entirely. I just looking around and when you notice a man up in the window, and I remarked to my wife, tried to point him out, and remarked that he must be a security guard, secret service agent. Well, the window then that you're referring to is on the opposite uh, end of the building from uh, where the main entrance to the building is. Yes, it is on the other side of the building. And he had a rifle. It looked like a high-powered rifle because it had a scope which looked in relation to the size of the rifle to be a big scope. Thank you for listening to episode 28 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.